I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of 1 Timothy. As an introduction, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy probably somewhere between 62 and 66 AD. We're told in the postscript that Paul was in Laodicea at the time of the writing. Timothy was one of Paul's preacher boys. The postscript to 2 Timothy tells us that Timothy was the first bishop of the Church of the Ephesians. This letter gives pastoral instruction to Timothy for direction in his ministry. Timothy had a Greek father and a Hebrew mother, which made him Greek. However, after conversion, Paul took him through the Jewish proselyte rituals for the sake of their ministry to the Jews. Timothy was circumcised at that time. So let's dig right into chapter 1. Watch out for those false teachers. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust." Paul first met Timothy on his second missionary journey at Lystra in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Timothy then became a companion to Paul. Later, Timothy became a dependable messenger for Paul to the churches. Having discipled Timothy, Paul refers to him as my own son in the faith in verse 2. The trip into Macedonia while leaving Timothy in Ephesus, verse 3, is not documented in the book of Acts. It probably took place afterward. Just as then, Paul instructs Timothy to hold the doctrinal line when he says in verse 3, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. There is some description of that doctrine against which Paul warns in verses 4 through 7, but not to the extent that we can get a clear view of exactly the error that was being taught. It would appear to be doctrine associated with the teaching of the Gnostics of the first century. From these comments, here is what we may derive about this false doctrine. First of all, it was based upon fables, that's the Greek word mythos, myths, and not scripture. A similar warning is given in Titus chapter 1 verse 14, where Paul tells Titus, 
not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. This causes us to suspect that it may have been Gnostic teaching about which Paul warned in Colossians. That makes sense inasmuch as the letters to the Colossians and to Timothy and Titus were written within three or so years of one another. More were Paul's direct usage of the word Gnosis in chapter 6, verse 20 of this book, uh, lends strength to the notion that Timothy's biggest culprits were those who taught this Gnostic doctrine. The reference to genealogies causes one to suspect that it was a doctrine based largely upon incorrect rendering of genealogical precedent while dismissing the clear teaching of the role of grace and faith in Christ for salvation. Paul's reference to end of the commandment in verse 5 indicates that it must have involved a mixture of the law of Moses overshadowing or exempting the role of grace and faith. Furthermore, his phrase in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, well, that leads us to the same conclusion. However, we see there that their resultant doctrine was disjointed and inconsistent with either grace or law. Paul spoke similarly to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, when he said, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Based upon these comments, it seems that Paul is probably warning against a strain of Gnostic doctrine that was being taught during that time. The gospel message was being abused by incompetent teachers. Paul sums it up in verses 6 and 7 when he says, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. As you must be aware, incompetent teachers thrive even today. Unfortunately, there are a lot of preachers today who do not spend time studying God's Word, rightly dividing the Word of truth. As a result, a lot of preaching today has insufficient scriptural basis. It was true in Paul's day, and it's still true today. Paul goes on to explain that these incompetent preachers even misunderstand the purpose of the law. Believers don't live by the law of Moses. The law is there to condemn the lost, sinful condition of man. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says it like this, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul makes a similar short declarative statement about the law of Moses in verse 8 when he says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. These incompetent teachers miss that important lesson. And what is that lawful use of the law? Condemnation of the wicked, as seen in verses 9 and 10. That's the proper usage. In other words, the law of Moses is not to be taught as the goal of victorious Christian living. That only comes through leadership of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, there are a lot of misguided Christians today who believe that they are saved by grace, but kept saved by adhering to the law of Moses. Ironically, these Christians have never faced the issue of their deliberate dismissal of commandment number four regarding Sabbath day keeping. I'd encourage you to read the article that I've written entitled, The Sabbath Day, Why Don't Believers Keep It? And you can click on a link that's on the written page of the notes for today, or you can go to the main page of BibleTrack.org and click on the link there under the topic section. Saving sinners is the subject of verses 11 through 20, 
verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Verse 11 actually tags on to the end of verse 10. After Paul describes the actions of unregenerate wicked people, he throws in a catch-all phrase, and here it is, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That's the catch-all phrase. Verse 11 then expands upon the term sound doctrine when Paul says this, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. There is a systematic approach to life in Christ that's taught by Paul and based upon salvation by grace. This system, it excludes law as a means of finding favor with God. Paul fought for this doctrine of salvation by grace against those who sought to dilute it throughout his ministry. That's because he believed that this doctrine was committed to my trust, he says. Paul continues with his ministry resume in verse 12, crediting Jesus Christ for putting me into the ministry. That means it wasn't just a job choice for Paul but a calling despite the fact that he refers to his past as having included being a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Since he actually presided over the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, one might even go a step further in indicting Paul's past. All of this was done ignorantly in the name of religion, as he points out in verse 13. Nonetheless, he's assured in verses 14 and 15 that Christ's grace was way sufficient to forgive his past even though he categorizes himself as chief. That's the Greek word protos, meaning number one among sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Paul says that he was chief, number one, as a sinner. After all, he did persecute Christians before his conversion, probably even sentenced some to death. And then there was Stephen. But Christ saved him anyway. That's a powerful message that can save someone like Paul. He encourages Timothy to stick to that saving message. Why was mercy extended to Paul for salvation? Well, we see in verse 16 that Paul regarded the mercy extended to him by God as an example of God's long-suffering to those who follow. If Jesus Christ would reach down and save the number one sinner, well, he'll save anyone. Verse 17 speaks to his authority to do so because he is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, Paul's words. Paul then issues a charge to Timothy in verses 18 and 19, which includes a restatement of his previous ministry call, having been confirmed by prophecies regarding him at the time of his ordination. 
Note the two references to Timothy's ordination found in verse 18 here and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Here in verse 18 it says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And then in chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Timothy, he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. It appears that Timothy had been ordained to the ministry in a setting accompanied by prophecies concerning his ministry, as well as the laying on of hands by the body of the elders who were present. That sounds like a formal ordination service. Well, here's the charge. War a good warfare. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses warfare terminology to define the ministry to which Timothy was called? Then Paul deals with a couple of fellows who blasphemed in the course of their ministry, Hymenaeus and Alexander. One of them gets mentioned again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, when Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Obviously, their wrongdoing was doctrinal and Paul does to them what he had suggested to be done to the adulterer in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the decree in both instances was to deliver the offenders over to Satan. It's believed by most that this terminology involved the withdrawal of fellowship from the offenders by the people of faith. Excommunication, if you will. What was their sin? Well, Paul describes it as, after holding faith and a good conscience, then having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. They didn't hold the line on their teaching of sound doctrine. It's quite apparent that Paul took seriously the preaching of heretical doctrine. In chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy to pray for our leaders, verse 1. I exhort therefore that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In verse 1, Paul writes, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. I think it's interesting that Paul uses three different words which might be used interchangeably, but they do each describe prayer from a little different perspective. Notice the three words that he uses here. First, he uses the word supplications, which from the Greek word deasis means an entreaty based upon a presumed need. Secondly, he uses the word prayers, which is the Greek prosuke. That means to speak to or make a request of God. And then the third word that he uses is intercession, which is the Greek word enchuxis, which means to speak to someone on behalf of someone else. So as you can see, all three words address a little different aspect of one's prayers. Now add to that the giving of thanks, and Paul has just defined spirit-led prayer life. These prayers, however, are specifically directed toward leadership. In other words, we pray for our leaders that we might lead peaceful lives, a subject Paul also addressed in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It is ironic that it's the very same Roman government here for whom Paul is praying, that gave him fits. And according to tradition, Paul was executed by that same Roman government after a subsequent incarceration. So why pray for such evil people? Well, first of all, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, verse 2. Furthermore, we see in verse 3 
for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In short, it's just the right thing to do. That brings us to chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Now verse 4 is worth repeating here regarding salvation for all. Paul says, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. No matter what you may have thought, God does desire, the Greek word there is thelo, means to will or to desire or to wish. God desires that everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. The fact that in God's foreknowledge, he knows the names of all people who will reject Christ as Savior presents a doctrinal dilemma for some, but not for me. It is what it is. Yes, he wants everyone to be saved, and yes, he knows who will accept and who will reject. He's God. He knows everything. Now, if you still have some concerns, some questions about the issue of God's foreknowledge and predestination, then check out my notes on Romans chapter 9. There's a link on this page on the written notes of BibleTrack.org, or you can go to the index and look for the notes on Romans chapter 9. 1 Timothy 2.5 is a powerful verse. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Who alone stands between God and man to make intercession? Well, the answer is only Jesus Christ our Lord. No substitutes are allowed. We see the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us in verse 6, where he's seen as a ransom for all. This single New Testament usage of the Greek word antilutron means ransom, is defined as the means or instrument by which release or deliverance is made possible. Paul makes clear in verse 7 that it is this Christ is our mediator message that has been entrusted to him, which he preaches faithfully to the Gentiles in faith and verity. That's the Greek word aletheia for truth there. Though not a popular message back home or to Jewish leaders anywhere, Paul had to preach the truth. Then Paul talks about a matter of public testimony in verses 8 through 15. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, after a little informational detour, it's back to the issue of prayer which Paul began in verse 1. In that verse, he dealt with the content of one's prayer. Now he continues in verse 8 with the testimony aspect of prayer. He declares this, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul expresses his desire that Christian men be seen praying for the people in verses 1 and 2, everywhere. Now that's not a figurative statement. Paul uses the Greek dative form of the noun tapas, with the all-inclusive adjective pas to indicate in all places. 
He's stressing the importance of men having a public testimony that characterizes them as men of prayer. He adds that their prayers should be without wrath and doubting. We know Paul's talking about public display because of his continuation in verse 9 with the public testimony of women, introducing it with, in like manner also. Now Paul discusses the public testimony of Christian women. The problem is that political correctness in today's society rejects this God-given role of women. First of all, Paul says that women should dress themselves modestly. He itemizes a style of dress that identified loose women in his day. Don't get hung up on the specifics of the dress style here. Just know that there is similarly a style of dress which advertises the wrong aspect of women today, one that flaunts all the wrong characteristics of a woman from a Christian perspective. This style should be avoided. Instead, the aspect of a Christian woman that should be accentuated is her service for the Lord. We see that in verse 10. Then we have the stake in the heart of the modern-day women's movement. Paul says in verses 11 and 12, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, I just don't feel a liberty to apply the Scripture outside of a church setting. But it seems clear in that setting. What about women preachers? Well, it says what it says. The literal meaning and all implications here seem clearly stated by Paul. Within the church setting, men are charged with taking the lead. A similar statement is made regarding the participation of women in corporate worship over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Paul does venture outside the church setting here with verses 13 through 15 in validating a woman's role in marriage. The verb saved is the Greek word sozo in verse 15, does not necessarily refer to spiritual salvation, and it does not mean that here. His comments here are meant to suggest the following idea. For godly women, their fulfillment in life is met as they raise good, strong, principled children. It's sad that we live in a society today where homemakers are discounted and demeaned. Bible-believing Christians place a badge of honor on all women who choose to put their families in the spotlight as Paul encourages here. In chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for elders, bishops, pastors, shepherds, verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In the New Testament, four words describe a single office within the local church. Elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd. Now, elder comes from a Greek word, presbyteros. That's the term that's used when we are describing those who govern a city or a province, in addition to being a general term for an older person. Now, bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means superintendent or overseer. This word was commonly used to describe a person who was in charge of a particular job like 
like a building contractor. Now, pastor shepherd are translations of a third Greek word, poimain. This word is only translated pastor in one verse in the New Testament. And that's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And by the way, that's in every translation that I've looked at. Every other occurrence is translated shepherd. When Paul addresses the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, there he uses all three of these Greek words that are seen here to describe the same office. So there's no scriptural differentiation between an elder, a bishop, a pastor, or a shepherd. They're all the same office with each word highlighting a different aspect of that responsibility. Men who are called by God to this office serve as pastors or shepherds of a flock, which means a local church body. In this passage, Paul gives the scriptural qualifications for those who feel that God has called them to this office. If you want to know more about this, then look at the information box to the right of the window on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. Or you can look at the article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, Pastors, Bishops, and Elders. And then there are the deacons in verses 8 through 13. Verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul, after this, after the elders and bishops and pastors, gives the scriptural qualifications for those who want to serve as deacons. While it's not indicated per se, we assume that the seven men who were appointed by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 to assist them in the ministry of the distribution to the needy within that church were the first deacons. That being the case, the model seems to be that when there's more to be done in the ministry than there are elders to do it, the church subsidizes the effort with deacons. Since elders, bishops, pastors are called by God to the gospel ministry, it would be inappropriate to appoint someone to be an elder who was not called to that office by God. Therefore, deacons are the local church solution to this very problem. Now, here are the qualifications that Paul lists for deacons in verses 8 through 12. Now, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I've listed the Greek words that go with the terms, with the phrases. And I'm not going to do that in the, um, in the podcast here, but I'm simply going to summarize for you. First of all, must be grave. That means that a potential deacon should be someone who is worthy of respect. Must not be double-tongued, and that means two-faced or hypocritical. Must not be given to much wine, in other words, no excessive use of wine. Must not be greedy of filthy lucre, not shamefully greedy for material gain. Must be holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, I've mentioned before in, in uh, my notes that musterion in the New Testament is the word for mystery. As a matter of fact, you can see how that it transliterates into English. And it means that which cannot be known naturally. In a general sense, the word means that which was previously hidden. A deacon must be clear in his understanding of salvation by grace through Jesus Christ, which was a concept described by Paul as a mystery in verse 16 that we'll be looking at in a few moments. 
must also be proved, the means having been selected based upon previous practice, must be found blameless, which means above reproach. And then we get to the deacon's wife. She must be grave, worthy of respect. She must not be a slanderer or a false accuser is what that means. A deacon's wife must be sober, means that she must be self-controlled and orderly. A deacon's wife must be faithful in all things, meaning reliable. And then we find a deacon must be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. There is no Greek distinction between man and husband or even woman and wife in the Greek. And so literally this says a one-woman man. In each passage where these terms are used, we derive from context, which is to be correctly understood, whether it's woman or wife or husband and man. There's no way to say with scriptural certainty whether Paul here is referencing polygamy or divorce and remarriage with this comment. By the way, scholars just disagree on this issue. And then a deacon must rule his own children and house well, having control over his children and his household. Paul concludes in verse 13 by saying this, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for degree here is bathmas, which means social standing. In other words, the office of a deacon puts one out front for scrutiny. It's an example position for other people. Then Paul talks about the mystery of godliness in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. Verse 14, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Paul expresses his desire to visit with Timothy, but until then, this letter will have to suffice serving as a document of detailed instruction on how one's ministry should be conducted. Paul adds gravity to the mission when he highlights the target in verse 15. He says, "...the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth." Paul means to convey the vital importance of the pastoral ministry here. If any pastor ever thinks that what he does isn't really that important, then go read verses 14 through 16 again. So in Paul's ministry... What's all the flack about with the Jews? Well, here it is in a nutshell. The mystery of godliness. A mystery is that which cannot be known by the spiritual mind, or the mind that's not led by the Spirit, usually in the context of having been previously hidden. This indeed is the concept rejected by the Jews. Let's look closely at this mystery in verse 16, where Paul says, "...and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness." God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now let's break down verse 16. First of all, God was manifest in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, which was, by the way, refuted by the Jews. And the second aspect of this mystery is Jesus was justified in the spirit, again, refuted by the Jews. The third aspect is Jesus was seen of angels, definitely refuted by the Jews. Fourthly, Jesus was preached unto the Gentiles. And that, should we say, 
was to the dismay of the Jews. And finally, Jesus was received up into glory, definitely refuted by the Jews. And that's why it's called by Paul a mystery, the Greek word mysterion. The natural mind rejects the supernatural purpose and existence of Jesus Christ. In the fourth chapter, we see a fight against asceticism. Verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. It's generally believed that first century Gnostics were ascetic in their approach to lifestyle issues, expressed most noticeably in their sexual and dietary practices. Whether these comments are directed specifically toward the Gnostics or not, there are some people then and now who think they aren't doing enough sacrificing for Christ. In Paul's day, as well as ours, there were those who adopted strange practices that they proclaimed should be practiced by everyone with a commitment to Christ. Basically, however, it amounts to false doctrine, not pleasing before God at all. It adds an extra scriptural layer of obedience to following Christ that's simply not appropriate. Therefore, it becomes an evil addition to one's faith, and Paul treats it as evil in this passage. These ascetic measures do sound familiar, don't they? Paul names two practices of these false teachers that help us identify their error in verse 3. Abstinence from marriage and vegetarianism. Don't misunderstand. One may practice either of these and not be a false teacher. However, we see in this passage that they taught that these were the ways to find favor with God. And that's what makes it a heresy. And a heresy it is. Look at the unflattering remarks that Paul makes regarding their doctrine and those who teach it in verses 1 and 2. He says it's a departure from the faith. It's the product of seducing spirits. It's the product of the doctrines of devils. That Greek word there means demonic beings. They're hypocritical liars. And finally, their consciences are seared. A seared conscience, by the way, disregards Holy Spirit leadership and forsakes sound principles. In verses 4 and 5, Paul continues that these two heretical practices are not to be regarded as scriptural mandates. Why is Paul so hard on practices that seem so, well, quite innocent? Well, consider this. When people add extra scriptural conditions to salvation or life in Christ, they destroy the doctrine of salvation by grace. So while Paul names just two of the characteristic false teachings of the first century teachers of asceticism, understand this, that any teaching which adds to the conditions for salvation or to favor with God, well, they're equally as evil. In chapter 4, beginning with verse 6, Paul talks about a good servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather into godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, 
and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In verse 6 here, Paul encourages Timothy to stick with his training, teach those things which he knows to be sound doctrine. In doing so, he's a good minister of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for ministry used there is diakonos and is frequently used in the context of non-pastoral service. But based upon context, it's obvious that Paul intends his comment to reflect the worthy service of a pastoral minister in holding the doctrinal line. Paul encourages Timothy to stay focused. In other words, don't get distracted with meaningless rituals and teachings which he describes as profane. As a matter of fact, the Greek word there is bebelos, which means worldly or godless, and then old wise fables. The word fables in Greek there is muthos, means myths. Things made up without any basis in substance is what it's talking about there. In other words, people tend to add spurious accessories to doctrinal truths. Don't be fooled by those. Paul figuratively uses the word for physical exercise in verse 7 when he encourages Timothy to exercise himself spiritually. When compared to a statement in verse 8, where it says, "...for bodily exercise profiteth little," It's obvious that Paul is talking about the aggressive sharpening of Timothy's ministry skills, just as one physically exercised in pursuit of athletic excellence. Paul further comments that the former has eternal rewards. He emphasizes in verse 9 that his preceding comments are to be universally accepted as sound doctrine. Paul himself has labored and suffered for this doctrine. We see that in verse 10. Notice his comment in verse 10 when he says, "...the Savior of all men." That is so in that Jesus paid a ransom for all, we saw up in chapter 2, verse 6. Although only believers are born again, the concept captured in Paul's additional stipulation here when he says, "...especially of those that believe." Beginning in verse 11, Paul challenges Timothy to command and teach these things, but in so doing, act like an adult." Now, that may seem like a strange admonition, but obviously Timothy was a young man. Paul's telling him that if he displays the immaturity of youth, he'll have a difficult time ministering, especially to more mature believers. Hang up the skateboard, Timothy. You're in a man's world now. Paul comprehensively itemizes aspects of living in which Timothy should make certain he shines as an example in verse 12. He lists six here. In word, in other words, his maturity in the knowledge of God's word. In conversation, the Greek word anastrophe there means lifestyle and behavior. And then thirdly, charity, in other words, love toward God and others. A fourth, spirit, a manifestation of the fruit of the spirit, as seen in Galatians 5, and 23. Faith, a dependence on God. Purity, a blameless lifestyle as prescribed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which we looked at a few moments ago. 
Paul gives uh, Timothy the successful ministry key in verse 13 when he says, Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. No question, Paul has placed some high expectations on Timothy here. He reminds him of his ordination to the ministry in verse 14. Paul concludes the remarks he began in verse 1 regarding those teaching false doctrine by emphasizing that correct doctrine saves. The implications are clear. False doctrine causes people to miss the message of salvation. Paul again encourages Timothy to hold the doctrinal line. Then we come to various instructions to Timothy that he's to relay to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 1, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. Well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they cast off their first faith. And withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So here we are. In verses 1 and 2, we see that we should treat older believers with respect. The word elders there is from the Greek word presbyteros. It's used in the New Testament in two separate contexts. The first is a reference to older people, and the second to the office of bishop, pastor, elder. So here it is obviously used in reference to older people. Timothy's conduct toward the younger women should be above reproach also. Treating them with the same level of respect one would show toward a sister. With purity, it says there, meaning chastity. 
Secondly, take care of widows who don't have families to do so. That's in verse 3. And then we find that families should take care of their own, including widows, in verses 4 through 8. Then we have some guidelines on entering the Widows and Deed Club in verses 9 through 16. With no government social programs, care for the needy was a constant issue. Of course, the woman's retirement program was her children. However, what if there was none to provide? Paul's obviously referring to a local group of destitute, uh, probably women over 60, destitute women whose necessary provisions will become the responsibility of the local assembly. Women of marrying age were not to be included in this group. It would appear that these older women had their own set of ministry responsibilities uh, in the church there. Verse 12 indicates a level of commitment embraced by these women. Younger women might seek provisions without the commitment and be subject to judgment. The Greek word for condemnation there in the King James Version is actually the word krema, which is often translated judgment instead of condemnation. These younger women of marrying age should marry instead of joining this group of widows indeed. Apparently, some bad experiences witnessed by Paul are recounted in verse 13. And then in verses 17 through 19, we see how to properly relate to elders, bishops, pastors, and shepherds. Context here definitely relates to the position of elder, not simply older men. Paul addresses the issue of financial compensation for elders in this passage in verses 17 and 18, calling upon an Old Testament reference, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. There you'll find a point of the law that provided as much food as the oxen could eat while they were plowing. Paul also quotes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, regarding his personal financial support. In verse 19, he's told to use extreme caution in the rebuking of another elder, making certain to have two or three witnesses present at the time. Verses 20 and 21 emphasize that all sin needs to be exposed as sin without any partiality. Verse 22 warns, lay hands suddenly on no man. What does that mean? Well, we don't know for certain. It could be for ordination of elders and deacons, but some have suggested that it dealt with the laying on of hands of reconciliation on repentant fallen elders when they are received back into the communion of the church. As I said, we don't know for certain. Verse 23 contains a little home remedy, the medicinal value of a little wine. And then finally, verses 24 and 25 tell us that sooner or later, people will see who we really are. In chapter 6, Paul deals with the issue of slaves. Verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, slavery during the first century was a legal reality, and had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded it. These slaves under Roman rule were not entire races, but rather certain people from within each race who were in bondage as slaves. So how might one end up being a slave during that era? Well, derived from extra-biblical historical documents, let me name a few ways. First of all, if you were born to a slave, you were born a slave, and remained such unless your master gave you freedom. Promiscuity, number two, was rampant during that era, 
it was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders would then harvest these unwanted babies and then hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. Thirdly, it's also true that a debtor could lose his freedom and be forced into slavery as a result. And finally, sometimes slaves were formerly prisoners of war. Now, the first two scenarios were probably the primary sources for the greatest number of slaves in the Roman society during that era. Paul deals briefly with the proper attitude of slaves toward their owners. Now, he had no power to change laws governing slavery. Some have questioned why Paul didn't just condemn slavery altogether in this and other passages. Now, keep in mind two issues at hand. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was a lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a benevolent slave owner was preferred by many over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. His was a ministry of reconciliation to God. Now, here was a man, Paul, writing to people from prison, enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to their slave owners. If you'd like to know more about this issue of slavery and the slave-master relationship, then look at the notes on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5-9. through 9. Then Paul tells Timothy, don't expect to get rich preaching. Verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content." But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, even though these words immediately follow Paul's brief encouragement to slaves, he seems to be referencing the entire body of his teaching with these comments. This would seem to be the capper on the whole letter of doctrinal mandates. Notice the authority Paul places upon the writings of this epistle in verse 3 by referring to them as, first of all, wholesome words, and then secondly, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, where here we see that Paul equates the doctrines in this letter to have the same strength as those words spoken by Jesus himself. And then finally, the doctrine which is according to godliness, he says. Now, the word for doctrine is the Greek word didaskalia, and that means teaching. Paul's teaching supports godliness. Now, those who dispute Paul's teachings are addressed specifically in verses 4 and 5. Here's the deal. Paul's words written to Timothy, well, and elsewhere in the New Testament, have the absolute authority of inspired Scripture from God, equal in strength with the words of Jesus and the entirety of the Old Testament. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, this... 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Understand that verses 4 and 5 dispel the notion that doctrine contrary to the teachings of Paul may be considered in any way acceptable because they aren't acceptable. Not only is the contrary doctrine to be rejected, but those teaching that doctrine are to be rejected as those with evil intent. Paul is directing this passage to Timothy, warning him of those who would use this ministry for financial gain. These false teachers modify their messages so as to extract money from their followers. And that's just wrong, wrong, wrong. Paul then makes some general comments that should serve as a warning to anyone who puts the accumulation of wealth as a higher priority than serving God. Paul's already acknowledged that it's appropriate to receive compensation for the ministry. He said so back in chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. However, he finds unacceptable those who are in the ministry for the money in this passage. He addresses those who do not accept that premise of ministry in verse 9 when he says this, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. If we stick to the context, Paul's obviously talking about one's motivation for ministering. The gospel of Jesus Christ should not be preached strictly for financial compensation. While many have taken this as a general exhortation regarding greed for money, it really seems to be a money versus sincere ministry issue in verses 9 and 10 here as well. Those who ministered for the money erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, it says. Timothy is then encouraged to stick to the correct motivation for ministry in verses 11 and 12. And then Paul encourages Timothy to fight the good fight of faith in verses 11 through 21 of chapter 6. Verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things and before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. But thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen." Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works and ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust." Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Paul encourages Timothy here to minister with the correct motivation in verse 11. Now here's Timothy's pep talk from Paul. Timothy is to view his ministry like a fight. Satan certainly does. He warns Timothy not to fall into the trap practiced by so many of modifying the clear presentation of the gospel there in verse 14. 
As a matter of fact, that seems to be the overriding theme of this letter written to Timothy. Stay firm with sound doctrine. In his parting words, Paul strengthens his encouragement for Timothy to stick to his solid ministry resolve. Paul concludes this letter to Timothy with some additional words about the proper message he should convey to those of financial means in verses 17 through 19. They should be encouraged to use their wealth for God's glory in that they share with others. Finally, Timothy is once again told to resist teachings that contradict sound doctrine. The Greek word for profane there comes from the Greek word bebelos. It literally refers to worldly, godless words. In other words, when we are talking about the supernatural nature of God, we do an injustice to the clear teaching of Scripture when we minimize God's power and authority with concepts that are anything less than descriptive of God in that supernatural context. These vain babblings come from the compound Greek word kenophania. These are empty sounds. Kenos means empty, phania sound. Sophisticated sounding words that have no real meaning. The Greek word translated science in the King James Version there is gnosis. It's the word for knowledge, but here holds the connotation of being the doctrine of knowledge taught by those in the first century that we know as Gnostics. Their sinister teachings were mostly error built upon a little bit of truth. Paul deals with these folks in his opening words of this letter in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-11. through 11. Paul also warned of the Gnostic teaching in the book of Colossians. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.